This isn't dogma, just my thought. I like to think of hell as being empty. I hope it is. Those are the words. I have not seen any um, uh, disputation as to the accuracy of the recording of these words. But um, two days ago, that's what Pope Francis said. This isn't dogma, just my thought. I like to think of hell as being empty. I hope it is. Now, a couple things, uh, as normal. If you wanted to pope splain it, and there's a whole new term now called pope splaining, you've got mansplaining, and now you have pope splaining, and and. Really, post-splaining has been around for about 10 years. We just didn't really necessarily have a term for it. Um, but, you know, when you've got Francis, you're going to be post-splaining pretty much every day, um, especially if you're in Rome. And, <laughs> or if you're a Catholic apologist, you're going to be post-splaining constantly. I, I don't know. Well, when the next pope comes along, it, it will probably only get worse. So it, it, it may be a new... They may develop programs for it in the various seminaries. Uh, Pope Splaining 101, uh, Pope Splaining 353. You know, that's the really advanced Pope Splaining class. I don't know, but um, if you're trying to Pope Splain and you're trying to find a way to get around what he's saying, uh, it wouldn't be difficult to do. I mean, you, you could just say, well, you know, he says this isn't dogma. Okay, he has to say that because... The religion that he's a part of has given him the ability to pronounce dogma. Okay, so he he knows that um, this isn't dogma. Just my thought. Okay, that there is. He's not saying I'm teaching this for the church. Good. All right, and then you can say um, I like to think of hell as being empty. Well, wouldn't we all like to say? that we wish that everyone would go to heaven. You know, we, we don't wish hell on any particular individual or something like that. <clears throat> I, I suppose you could just say that in some general, vague fashion. But let's remember a few things. Um, this is the same Pope who early on in his pontificate, uh, we played the video. Young, young boy comes up to Francis um, his dad died as an atheist, and but he had had his kids baptized, even though he was an atheist. And he's all worried that his dad's not going to be in heaven. Now look, um, probably one of the places where ministers of any kind are most tempted to change their theology is in that context. Uh, I think some of the worst theology in the planet will be found at funerals and gravesides. Where everything else you teach is just out the window and everybody gets to go to heaven just because people are crying. And that's all, all you need to do to go to heaven is to have people crying. But Francis made it clear that he thought this man would be in heaven. He's an atheist. 
And a lot of people were like, well, again, that's not an official... Well, we, we know that. We, we get that. But the problem is, you're getting insights into the theological life and mind of the man who can make those decisions and who can affirm changes to the catechism of the Catholic Church as on capital punishment, going against minimally hundreds of years of Roman Catholic Church tradition. Um, and now, uh, with his statement concerning, you know, fiducia supplicants, his statement concerning giving of blessings, uh, which he's doubling down on, uh, which he's, you know, uh, saying, you know, when you may have to make tough decisions, sometimes you get lonely. <laughs> this is supposed to be the head of all the faithful, but he's lonely. And why? Because he's charting a new course. That's why. And it's obvious to everybody. But anyway, uh, the real issue is when you when you look at the Catholic Catechism and you look, you read section 1035 if you have your own copy or you can go online and it's there. 1035 The teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell, where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. So, the, the Catholic Catechism says that you go into hell... If you die in, in a state of mortal sin, um, immediately upon death. Now, I disagree with that, by the way. Um, it seems rather obvious to me that hell is the final state. Uh, you go to Hades, um, and then death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire, the book of Revelation, at the, at the end. Um, but that's not a major deal, but it is important here because I could say hell's empty because that's still future. He can't say that because from the Roman Catholic perspective, um, hell is where people go when they die outside of receiving the sacramental forgiveness of the Roman Catholic Church. It's what the Church has taught since, let's just say since Trent, Okay. Before then, but officially, we can document it there. So what does this mean? Um, for, for the Pope to say, um, I like to think of hell as being empty. I hope it is. There, there is only one possible conclusion to that. The only way for hell to be empty is for universalism to be true. The idea, universalism... Now, I have said for years that the majority of the teaching magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church are inclusivists. What is inclusivism? Inclusivism is the idea 
Uh, if you want to hear it all fleshed out, go listen to the debate that I did with John Sanders at The Grind <laughs> in Tampa many years ago. Um, on the subject of inclusivism, and it's the idea that a any kind of faith movement toward God or a God is considered to be a faith movement toward Jesus, even if you don't know who Jesus is. And it's that way people in all sorts of religions um, can be said to have made a movement toward God in Christ, even if they don't know who he is. Deadly for missions, but Anyway, um, so I've said for a long, long time, I, th I think the majority of people in the Roman Catholic teaching magisterium, the, the leadership of the church, are inclusivists. Uh, I've certainly heard them making that kind of, that kind of statement. Um, but that's different than universalism. Inclusivism still leaves open the door for some kind of um, eternal punishment for those who never make that faith movement toward any kind of God, who are totally self-absorbed, things like that. And so, you, you already had, going back a long ways, uh, Vatican II demonstrated that there, there's a deep, left-leaning, progressivist, back then we called it liberal, um, element within Roman Catholicism and that, that is not consistent with the historical views and would have gotten most of the people promoting these things um, minimally kicked out and in many centuries burned at the stake within the Roman Catholic uh, where the Roman Catholic Church held sway. So it's not this stuff's new but this is the Pope. This is the Pope who's already making changes. This is the Pope who's changing the way that his successor is going to be chosen. Um, this is the Pope that is, that is showing to anyone who wants to see it that he is willing to, to turn the wheel and turn the direction of the ship uh, as he pleases. And so, when you think about it, if hell is empty then the entirety of the Roman Catholic sacramental system is worthless. has no meaning. Why are you going to the priest? Why are you kneeling before the altars? Why are you going to Mass every day? If atheists get to go to heaven, if the Muslims go to heaven, and man, I, <laughs> it, it's always just... It's, it has always been such a uh, reality of it, it just it just it just clinks it, it clanks when you you know you've you've got you've got statements you know missionary mandate and and you know all the rest of that kind of stuff but but when you read the statement of the catechism, and where is it? Uh, fully incorporated, separated brethren. Where was that? 840, there it is, 841. I thought it was 831, 841. 
The plan of salvation also includes includes those who acknowledge the Creator. Now that sounds like inclusivism. In the first place amongst whom are the Muslims. These profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us, they they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge in the last day. Now that, they with us adore the one merciful God. that's, That's what the catechism says. Now, anybody who knows anything about church history, theology in the past, stuff like that, knows that uh, that's not what the Roman Catholic Church believed when they were calling for crusades and doing stuff like that. You know, that wasn't was not a part of the um, uh, 1592 uh, Catechism of the Council of Trent. I can assure you of that. So this stuff has been there, and there's this the, this inconsistency and this incoherence and contradiction uh, has been there for decades and decades. But Francis is just uh going where the popes have not been willing to go before. And to say, I like to think of hell as being empty, I hope it is, as the head of the Roman Catholic Church, not saying I'm teaching this, is to say as the head of the Roman Catholic Church, I hope everything we teach about the sacraments is a bunch of baloney. That's that's what he just said. And conservative Roman Catholics know that's what he just said. That's that's the first thing they heard when he said this. So when I say there is a crisis in Roman Catholicism today, (laughs) there is. There is. And no matter what we do, um, next month, when I debate Trent Horn uh, in Houston on two different topics, Sola Scriptura, Purgatory. Francis is relevant to both. You can't, you, you can't pretend that the Pope just didn't just say, I hope hell is empty. What does that say about Purgatory? What does that say about indulgences? What does this tell us that the, that the current infallible vicar of Christ on earth really believes about these things? Because if isn't he supposed to believe the teachings of the church? So to say, I hope that the teachings of the church in broad form have completely missed it. <laughs> that, that's liberation theology. Yeah, that's liberation theology, but it's not Roman Catholicism. And there have been conservative Roman Catholics saying for a long, long time, we can't keep going this direction because it's going to lead to... Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, it has. <laughs> it, just, it has. Um, yeah, so that's that's not good. And then when he was uh, pressured uh, in a uh, interview, again, I think this was... Maybe just, yeah, I think it was just yesterday. He he doubles down, and he he basically says, uh, Pope Francis has defended his controversial decision to let priests bless same-sex couples, but admitted that, quote, 
solitude is a price you have to pay, end quote, when you make difficult decisions. I thought that there was this whole concept of the church as a living organism and what, what, what? Think about it. So the head is over there in solitude while the rest of the body is over. That's not generally a good situation, you know, when you think about it. Um, um, he acknowledged the remarkable opposition his decision has sparked. Africa's bishops have united in a continent-wide refusal to implement the Vatican Declaration and individual bishops in Eastern Europe, Latin America, and elsewhere have also voiced opposition. Thank God for Africa. I mean, I am so thankful that the Anglican bishops in Africa told the Archbishop of Canterbury to stick his head in a bucket of ice, uh, which I guess people are doing again. It's supposed to make you feel good or something. I <laughs> Hot shower. Nice when it's cold. Yeah, no, I'm not doing that. Anyway, um, so so they're they're like, no, we're not. This same sex stuff doesn't fly here. And now the Roman Catholic bishops in Africa are doing the same thing to Francis and saying, "Nip, not doing that." Now, folks, that's schism. I don't care what you, what how else you want to define it. The Pope is saying X, and they're saying not X. Um. Pretty straightforward. Um, now, of course, he he says um, Francis acknowledged in his first comment since the uproar the resistance the decision has generated. He blamed it on bishops not really understanding the issue and refusing to open a dialogue about it. Now, now folks, <laughs> again, I don't know how many of you are following this, or maybe most of you are just like, we'll just let you do it. <laughs> You just you just fill us in about what's what's going down here, but you you just have to understand this synod on synodality that's going on. Uh, when the meetings were taking place a few months ago, and the conservative bishops are coming out and saying we're not getting to say anything, we have to sit there and be lectured by people about how wonderful inclusion of LGBTQ plus stuff is. That's the whole, that's the whole purpose here. That's what they're doing. That's what it's all about. Um, and you, you, so you read him talking about, and not having a dialogue about it. What, what do you mean? Uh, Tucho Fernandez is not looking for dialogue. Okay. Um, I mean that, the Vatican has been corrupt for a long time in many ways, but man, it has just never been this obvious. Well, in our lifetimes, sorry. <laughs> Obviously, during the days of Luther, you know, the Pope's riding through Rome in his armor and doing stuff like that. And then, of course, the pornocracy in the 10th century, uh, 9th and 10th centuries. Um, yeah, much, much worse. Um, but those were pretty much behavioral stuff, you know, brothels and stuff like that. Um, this is plain up, straightforward, we want to change the direction of the church. And we're in charge, so we get to do that. And it's sort of like what's happened in the United States. We have people in charge in the United States government that 
could care less about the Constitution, could care less about what made this nation what it was, and are seeking to, well, that the President of the United States has overseen the invasion of um, like 8 million people uh, into our country in just a little over two years. And um, you, you, you know that they're then going to go, well, we can't kick them all out now, so we might as well let them vote. And they're closing schools to house these people. How long before someone's going to show up at your front door with a couple people from who knows where? The whole world's coming. And saying, well, uh, the city council has decided that uh, there are only two of you living in this house and you have three bedrooms and therefore uh, you will house these people. And you go, no, be careful about the no part. Just be careful. I mean, your tax dollars are already being used to build. I mean, not far from where I live. They've they've built all sorts of public housing stuff. Basically for the homeless. That whole area over there is just being overrun. And now you get to hear bang, 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 bang. And it's gunshots. And then the, the, there will be... a bunch of police presence and they're dragging bodies away and yellow tape and it's yeah the helicopters yeah well uh, you know all the time and it's just just the way it is it's the way it's supposed to be because that's how you destroy a nation from inside because traitors are now running it and that's where we are so it happens politically and it seems to me francis and his boys uh they're looking at the how how this is happening politically and they're just doing the same thing they're doing. They're pulling off the same same stunt, but theologically. So, so there you go. Um, what? Yeah, yeah. That's his target practice. Okay. All right. So, I was actually thinking. I had mentioned to Rich. I said, you know, it's been a long time since so we did Zoom calls and stuff like that. And so, how about we think about that? And then across my feed comes Brandon Robertson. Now, you all remember that last year, right about now, as I recall, I think it was January, February, um, Jeff Durbin and I... Oh, and by the way, before I go into that, um, I started a new sermon series at Apologia on uh, Sunday night. Sunday afternoon, I guess, technically. And um, uh, it's the first time that Jeff and I have done something like this together where uh, we're going to divide up the topics. And uh, so we're, we're, and Jeff decided to name it the Roman Catholic controversy. <laughs> Never heard of that term before. And um, so I did the introduction sermon, uh, and I will be preaching on the subject of the papacy uh, this coming Sunday. And. Uh, I don't know when it's going to conclude or anything like that because he travels, I travel. He, he he traveled a whole lot more last January, but he just can't this January because of the twin girls. And um, man, I just cannot imagine what that's like. You're getting toward... He's not 50 yet, but he's, he's, he's getting gray in the beard, that's for sure. And uh, he can't blame me for that. Um, but having... Twin preemie girls just boom dropped on you out of absolutely nowhere. Um, 
amazing stuff. But anyways, so I'm going to try to do like three sermons before I leave. And um, then when I get back, we'll be addressing, obviously, justification, baptism, sacraments, Mary, all that kind of neat, fun stuff. So there'll be a whole, um, I'm sure there'll be a whole video list, playlist on uh, YouTube once we get all that stuff put up there. But the first sermon's up. If you're interested in those areas, you want to do more, um, be aware of what's going on there. And of course, the first two debates in the marathon trip coming up are on Roman Catholicism as well. And I'm supposed to be on um, the Ali Beth Stuckey show. I suppose I should let people know this, huh? Uh, on... Uh, the 13th of February. 13th of February. So, uh, and that'll be on Roman Catholicism too. It may be with Trent Horn. I'm not sure who it's going to be. But it may be uh, Trent Horn. And uh, we'll be discussing, you know, the fundamental differences between uh, well, biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism I, would be my way of phrasing it, but we'll see how it's put at that particular point in time. And um, so keep that in prayer too, because I'm not even including that. So that's, that's six encounters on that trip. And right now, I can't give you details on this, but my friends in Louisiana are in contact with Catholic apologetics people for a debate in April. <laughs> so we're uh, we're cranking them out. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're we're cranking them out. So um, I haven't mentioned. I, I mentioned. I've we've mentioned on the program before, and I didn't ask Evan. Uh, let me. Um, I'll try to remember to look over there and get you this information. But the last that Evan and I talked, Evan McClanahan is the pastor at First Lutheran there in Houston, and uh, is he's trying to he's trying to compete with Chris Arnzen and Michael Fallon as far as uh, debate organization is concerned. He really is. Um, he's behind four of the five debates on the next trip. And, and that means he's been doing the contacting, doing the setting up, the tickets. It's a lot of work. So I just, I, I salute him um, and thank him for how much work he's doing. Um, but uh, the last time we talked, there was still room at the Tuggy debate, which is the last one. Um, but I just asked, is the Tuggy debate sold out? I haven't heard back. I, I'll, I'll try to remember to look over there and let you know. What that means is there's no more room. Um, and so I was having to contact him to see if I could get certain people in, which he'll work with me to, to make that happen. But, um, you know, there's just only so many seats. There's, there's, the pews are only so big. There's, uh, I mean, it's a pretty large church. Uh, but, I'm not sure what it seats. Maybe 800 ish, and there's a there's a uh, balcony up there as well. Um, and I 
there's there is a, a, a other building there, so maybe there would be overflow for that. I don't know, but we'll let you know. Um, and I did say to Evan, I, I do need to let I need to let y'all know this because this is not how I normally do debates. But because of how intense this trip is going to be, five debates, the Ali Beth Ducky thing, um, the uh, teaching Baptist Church history, the Y Calvinism conference, the debate at the Y Calvinism conference with Jason Breda, um, doing my regular, and, and, and again, this has been my practice for a long, long time. And if you've, if you've only come to my debates, then you don't realize how unusual this is. But I meet with people after debates. I shake hands. I take selfies. I sign books. I listen to stories because they're wonderful to hear. Um, I'm not going to do that after the Trent Horn debates, either one of them. Uh, because that that is the maximum exposure time for disease. <laughs> That's just all there is to it. Shaking hands and some of you just don't respect personal space and, and I'm always backing up and backing up and um so for those first two debates I'm gonna when the debate's over it's good night we'll we'll see y'all later I if Trent wants to do that I suppose he'll be allowed to do that um I'll do it for the last two debates because I figure if I've survived that long um you know I may get sick on the way home but We'll, we'll we'll live through that. Um, but just to let you know, it's not because I'm trying to be... You know, I'm just trying to get through a 35-day road trip with five debates um, and lots and lots of other stuff in the process. And there's only just one of me, and I ain't getting any, any younger. So, okay. So as I said, I was... We were talking maybe about doing some Zoom calls and stuff like that. And then Brandon Robertson pops across my um, feed. Um, you all can go watch the, I think they called it um, Challenging the Gay Theologian or something. I forget what it was. But we did a thing last year. And just quickly, because most of you probably already know this, uh, when I first heard Brandon Robertson, I forget what the context was. I know that he was part of a group that spoke with Michael Brown at um, the NRB convention. Oof, I'd probably say 2016, 2015, 2016, somewhere around there. Um, I, I just remember where I was. I That's why I keep saying this. I remember exactly where I was on bike. Uh, back in those days when I could ride outside and not have to dr ride through homeless encampments. Um, and I, I, I probably said it out loud, so if some person was walking by walking their dog as I was riding through that particular neighborhood in North Phoenix, uh, they would have heard me say, that guy's never going to stay Orthodox. I could just tell. He was at that time, and he was very, very young, you know, a moody student, he was trying to do the I'm same-sex attracted, but I'm an Orthodox Christian thing. And first time I heard him speak, I was like, that ain't going to last. That is not going to last. 
don't know. I don't know how I knew. I, my recollection is it has something to do with how we viewed scripture. Uh, I said, no, ain't gonna, ain't gonna happen. Um, okay. So I just heard back from Evan. Uh, that one may still have a few, like 25. So the Dale Tuggy debate, which is the last debate, and I think probably one of the most important ones of the trip um, in an overarching sense. Most, most people struggle to deal with Unitarians. They don't, y'all don't get out, like I keep saying, uh, and, and take these folks on. Um, so yeah, there's, there seems to still be some space uh, at uh, the last of the four debates in Houston, which I believe is the 9th of March. Yeah, it seems like a long time from now, but I literally have, what's, what's today? The 16th? Um, yeah, so I have, I only have two weeks from today. I have to have my opening statement sent off to Dale Tuggy for that debate. Okay, whatever. Um, so just wanted to let you know uh, that that was uh, the case. Uh, I will respond to that. Okay. Brandon Robertson um, is now quote-unquote pastoring. Uh, we had tried to get a debate with him, and he said he was moving to Dublin to work on a PhD. Uh, he ended up not doing that. Uh, he was going to go to Trinity. I think there's something appropriate about that. Um, Trinity College in Dublin, uh, incredibly beautiful place. Not exactly Orthodox any longer, but anyway. And what he is doing now is he's getting a PhD in unbelief, in heresy. Um, he has, as you know, once once the tether breaks, there's nothing to stop you. He's all the way out there. So why in the world respond to a video from him? Um, the reason wants to respond to a video from him is because what he's saying. I keep trying to tell our audience, I keep trying to communicate to our audience, because you're the folks that are going to be talking to these people. You're, you're the folks that you're serious about your faith, but you want to take it outside of Facebook forums. You want to actually be able to give a reason for the hopes within you. You have to recognize that if you believe That this is the inspired, consistent revelation from God that Genesis is supposed to have the connection it has to Revelation. Um, that this is a supernatural work from God. The way Jesus viewed it. <laughs> Which is, as we're going to see it here in a moment, is ironic. Um, given what Brandon says. If you believe that, you are in the minority in the quote-unquote Christian academy today. And the things that Brandon are going to say are what you're going to hear at almost, well, you're going to hear it at pretty much every state university, any type of public education. Yeah, this is what you're going to get. But you're going to get it in a large portion of the rest of stuff. Uh, in religious institutions and Bible colleges and seminaries and stuff like that. And so 
if you went to a school like that and you didn't get this, be thankful. <laughs> be thankful because this is what's out there. So I only have a certain amount of time because we sort of need to wrap up on time today. Um, I may go a little bit over, but I may let more go past than I normally would uh, because there's so much to be refuted. But I want you to hear the answer to this question that is given to him. Um, and that's the whole that's the whole point of doing this this time is to edify you and to make sure you know this is the stuff that's coming. Here you can see it being used in a clearly, obviously, heretical fashion, destructive of the church and Christian morality, faith, ethics, the whole nine yards. But there's a foundation to it. And his foundation here basically is to say, there is a gospel according to Jesus and there's a gospel according to Paul. And they contradict each other. And this is how you, you tear the Bible apart. So it cannot speak with any type of consistency to anything. Because remember, when we took him on, he has his excuses for Leviticus and his excuses for uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and his excuses for Romans 1. And, and, but they're all broken apart. There's no putting them together. Because from, their, from the, the progressivist perspective, they are isolated texts and how they relate to one another is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. There's no one source behind them. So you can, you know, it's separate them, pick them off. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. Which is why Christians have never come to these conclusions, because they honored the Word of God and didn't treat it that way. These people dishonor the Word of God horribly, and therefore they can sit as judges over any individual passage, because it doesn't have to be consistent with or harmonized with anything else. So let's take a listen to this, um, and I will stop and start at some places, but not every place that I could. Okay? This one was submitted online. I, I thought I'd put it back, but um, I think I had to listen to it myself. So um, we did test it, make sure this is going to work. And this is a question submitted online. This one was submitted online. What do we know about Jesus and the actual teachings of Christ? And how do we divorce this from the usually hypocritical, Paul-centered, Paul-centric teachings of a typical church? Well, this is one of my favorite questions. Because if you grew up in conservative evangelicalism, you probably grew up in Pauline Christianity, where Paul is more quoted and more followed than Jesus. And this is something I've been studying a lot recently, actually, because it is perplexing to me how even in all of my theology degrees, um, it was all centered on Paul and figuring out how to teach the church about Paul's theology to the detriment of what Jesus said. And I actually don't know if you know this, but if you read the New Testament, you find that Paul and Jesus often come into contradiction with each other. Okay, so hopefully you're hearing what's what's being said here. There's lots of things that I could have stopped there. But there is a overarching fundamental assertion um, that that Paul and Jesus are at loggerheads, they, they are contradicting one another, it's two different kinds of Christianity. And unfortunately, again, this is extremely common, and one of the reasons that I want to make sure you're aware of this and we have done entire programs in the past um, on the consistency, the beautiful harmony of Paul's epistles with the Gospels. They have different purposes. 
they're addressing different issues. That's where the, you know, this, so much of the apostate, unbelieving theology of today is actually simplistic. It's childish. It's like when I hear people with confidence saying, well, we know that Paul didn't write the pastoral epistles. He didn't write 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus because the vocabulary is so different than the books that we know that he wrote. Well, I'm not sure how you know he wrote any of them in the way you're using that term. But guess what? Einstein, um, the vocabulary that I use in writing... Okay, I, Tom Buck and I exchanged some text messages yesterday because I couldn't, I couldn't resist saying something about the Cowboys. What was that? Hitting a man when he's down. Didn't you used to be a Redskins fan? Still am, there, but there are no Redskins. That's correct. <laughs> They're what? Oh, okay. Whatever. Anyway, I can't hear you. Uh, anyway, um, I said some stuff about the Cowboys. I tried to be a little less nasty than some of the other people. But so we started exchanging some some uh, tweets. We ended up on the phone, but. The point is this, if I wrote a letter to Apologia Church, let's say I wanted to put something in the bulletin, something really important, I wanted to tell them about something that's coming up and just really want to make sure people had this. If you're to compare the vocabulary in what I write to a church for multiple people who are reading it, with the vocabulary and the word choices stuff that I used in text messages to Tom Buck, after the Cowboys choked up, lost again. Did you know Green Bay ha- ha- has won everything in that stadium? They're just like it's it's theirs. It's astonishing. Anyway, um, and what was it? Nineteen ninety six was the last time they they won the Super Bowl. I mean, that was that was last century. It's it. I mean, it's really it's 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 a sad thing, and I I feel for Tom. Anyway, um, <laughs> if you compared. Uh, the the vocabulary of the text messages with the letter, you would conclude that two different people wrote those things. But it's the difference in context, audience, occasion, and everything else. So when, you know, I went to Fuller Seminary, I had to learn this stuff. I had to listen to people uh, saying that Paul didn't write this stuff and, and, and all the rest of that stuff. And very early on, I started going... These folks aren't consistent. This is the easy way out. Um, and they'd never allow for harmonization at all. Because uh, they describe that as the simplistic way. And believe me, some fundamentalists do harmonization in a very simplistic fashion. That's true. Um, but this is, this is the issue. This, this, is, this stuff that you're getting, instead of seeing the beautiful harmony, instead of recognizing that, that Paul is called to a specific thing, um, you get this kind of, oh, it's, you know, we can, we can take the Bible apart. And a couple things about Paul that should be said. Paul never met Jesus, never heard Jesus preach. Paul only knows Jesus through secondhand knowledge. 
So I guess, obviously, Paul's own conversion story is actually a lie. Um, you know, and, and any of the other encounters that he has or any revelation or anything like that, that's, we can just dismiss all of that. So as we're reading the writings of the Apostle Paul, we need to know who he is. We need to know his context. He's removed from Jesus himself. And Paul and Jesus are preaching two different gospels. Both are important to Christianity, but one is the gospel that we live by, and one is the Apostle Paul's unique mission. Paul's mission was to tell... Yeah, there's, there's nothing in Paul's um, teaching about how we're to, we're to live um, at all. Nothing, nothing there. No. Mm -mm. The story of Jesus around the world. That was his goal. And so when Paul talks about his gospel, and if you actually read Paul's writing, he refers to it as my gospel, not the gospel. His gospel is the story of Jesus. His goal is to go into the parts of the world that nobody's ever heard about this guy named Jesus who lived in first century Palestine and tell them the story. And Paul sums up his gospel by saying, Christ crucified, died, and risen. That's important. We need to know the story of Jesus. But the gospel, according to Jesus, is in Mark chapter 1. It says Jesus was going throughout the Galilee, preaching the gospel and saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news. The message of Jesus was quite simple. The God is doing a new thing in the world. Are, are you sitting there going, yeah, but, 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 but Jesus hadn't died. <laughs> There's, you know, I, I mean, what are you going to do with that message once Christ has ascended into glory and has sent the church out with his authority, uh, the authority that over all things, uh, it doesn't there need to be some explication there? And the answer is obviously yes. Um, but remember, these churches, men like Brandon Robertson, they're not under the authority of Scripture. He would recoil if you even use terminology being under the authority of Scripture. No way. Uh -uh. God is calling us to a new way of living in the world. And Jesus' gospel is primarily social and ethical. It was about a new way of living, a new standard of justice. You know, and that's why Jesus is always getting into these controversies with the with the, the scribes and Pharisees, uh, because it was just social and ethical, and so that's why they're arguing about who, how did Abraham see your day, and <laughs> stuff, stuff like that. It was just social and ethical. <laughs> how do we live in a more just and generous world? How do we create a better world that benefits everyone? Yeah, you know, does that does that sound a little bit like the Bible according to Klaus Schwab? Yeah, it, it does. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? It's it's the WEF version. Okay, has nothing to do with this because they don't care about this. It's it's yeah. That he's wanting to be sound. This is how you sound like the current social issues and stuff. It's it's great and it's wonderful. It's disgusting. Paul's gospel was primarily theological. Who was Jesus? Why was he important? Both are necessary again. And and no application, right? No no application. Which is what 1 Corinthians 6 is, which excludes him from the kingdom of heaven. You, you think that might, might enter into why he's wanting to try to create these distinctions and stuff that, that it's just obviously laughable to anyone who's actually read it? Yeah, it might have something to do with it. Yeah. But at Mission Gathering, we, we really center, I try to center in all of my teaching on the four Gospels, what Jesus actually said, what he actually did. 
And we use Paul as uh, a support for that message. But if Paul and Jesus ever come into contradiction, we're going to side with Jesus every time. And also in the New Testament, I want to encourage... And of course, we get to decide when that is. And so, you know, when when Paul says that Arsenokoitai and Malakoi, and he's visually representing both um, in this presentation, um, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, well, that's contradictory to Jesus, and so we don't have to worry about it. it, it everybody who's watched the formerly mainline denominations collapse, shrivel up, and die knows exactly how this works. We've seen it over and over again. I urge you to look at this too. Paul <laughs> often debated with a lot of the early apostles. Paul and Peter disagreed with each other, and you read about their nasty fights throughout the New Testament. Uh, throughout the New Testament, huh? Um, well, no. We have the encounter in Antioch, and now there's there there there's some fascinating discussion. Excuse me. There's fascinating discussion as to what to the timing of the Antioch encounter and Acts 15. That's you know read F.F. F. Bruce's discussion of that in in his commentary on uh, it, it. It's it's fascinating stuff. But this idea that they're just constantly in disagreement with one another. No, and in fact, Paul was right. Um, from these people's perspective, there is no right to begin with. So you can side with either side, doesn't matter. And Paul really didn't like James, who was the brother of Jesus. Really? Where do you get that from? Well, you get that from misunderstanding James chapter 2. But again, you just need to understand, it's not just this one homosexual pretend minister. He's getting this from all sorts of folks who aren't homosexuals. It is common, it has been around forever to say that Paul and James, that, that James is literally writing against Paul. Uh, that's why, again, I would recommend to you um, the chapter on James chapter 2 um, in The God Who Justifies. I put a lot of work, a lot of effort I think it's a 32-page chapter. It's um, not the easiest read, but I would highly recommend it to you because that is a common argument. That is a common, common argument. Peter and James were the people who knew Jesus best, who spent the most time with Jesus. And if you read the writings of Peter and then you read the book of James, you find a message that's very that mirrors exactly what Jesus said. James really? I, you know, when I've read Peter... Of course, I doubt that he... In fact, if I recall, didn't something come up in that debate last year where he didn't believe that Peter had actually written? Or was it uh, Paul in 2 Timothy? But again, the, the sources that he's using would say that Peter didn't write what's found in first and second Peter. So how do you even know? A again, the inconsistency, there's, it's incoherent. You get to pick and choose, put together as you wish. It's Plato, 
form it into whatever you want. That's that's progressivist biblical manhandling. He says, for instance, faith is good works. Paul comes along and says, that's not true. If Paul is contradicting James, who spent his life with Jesus, is the brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus, knew what Jesus taught, I would encourage us to side with James. Okay, so that's simplistic, childish misrepresentation of both James and Paul. It's not serious exegesis. This man can't do serious exegesis. He's demonstrated that for a long time. That's childishness. But you have to know why. That means I would, I would encourage everybody, take the time to find out what James was saying in James chapter 2 and the perfect harmony that exists between that and Ephesians chapter 2, which he doesn't believe Paul wrote either, come to think of it. Um, again, there's, you, you, you cannot come up with any consistency from their, their side because they can just take this and tear pages out and throw them out and, and you don't have anything left. And it's, so you're the one that has to do the hard work of putting these things together and holding these things together, doing adult reading of the Bible. Now, this is a different way of engaging scripture. We do. You think? You think? See, he knows. He knows. He went to Moody. He's not stupid. So he knows that what he's doing is, hey, I'm to get pick and choose whatever I want to believe. It's fun. (laughs) And people listen to me and pay my salary. It's amazing. The entire Bible is inspired by God. But... We also have to understand the cultural context of the Bible. We also have to understand who the people are that are writing and speaking in the Bible. And as we engage with that contextual lens, the Bible actually becomes a much more interesting book and a lot easier to understand in one regard because you're not trying to make Paul and Jesus and James and Peter say the same thing because they don't. This catch one was that? submitted online. Did you catch that? He said it right there at the end. A whole lot easier to understand. We don't have to have a consistent... We can just let it be a mass of self-contradiction, and that's so much easier. <laughs> there, there it is. There it is. Yep. That's the cheap, childish, easy way out. You, you don't have to... You see, the problem is, he wants to pretend like he's following Jesus, but he doesn't follow Jesus' understanding and view of Scripture. And he never will. Because Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. Uh, Jesus affirmed Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. And that the Holy Spirit was involved in the production of the Tanakh. And that means Leviticus 18 and 20 is still relevant. That means the language of Leviticus 20 is what's behind Arsenokoitai in 1 Corinthians 6. And 1 Timothy 1, where Paul is going down the the Ten Commandments and expands the sexual immorality commandment to include homosexuality. He's never going to accept that because he is as gay as they come. And so he wants to be a Christian gay guy. And this doesn't allow that. So what do you got to do? Shred it. And that's why he sits there at the end and goes, you know, this may not be... Yeah, because it doesn't make a lick of sense. 
And he cannot defend the Christian faith against any attacks at all, whatsoever, because he has no revelation from God. He cannot say, oh, that interpretation is wrong. That assumes a objective revelation that contains and defines truth. He doesn't have that. He doesn't have that. So, so there you go. That's, um, that's how it works. So, um, but aside from that one example of, okay, you know, we know Brandon Robertson, he's the one that did the, um, Jesus was a racist thing. And, and, you know, he just flies off into Nana land all the time. This is how progressivist biblical how progressivist attacks upon biblical foundations gets used to mute the testimony of the church because hey people outside the faith they look at they look at something like that and well here's a guy he seems so so reasonable and so nice and just you know and he's sitting there with his legs crossed and he's doing his thing and and he's you know and that's what the society likes now and that's that's what's that's what's good in society and 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 he's just saying we can do anything we want with the bible and he just sounds like he really knows i mean he has all these degrees and things like that and they go and the guy over here saying actually scripture is very consistent here scripture is consistent well brandon robertson says it's not consistent see that's that's how it all works that's that's why whenever you have um, congressional hearings and stuff like that where people are, are seeking to testify to the truth of Scripture, in will come the lesbian, ELCA, woman, priest, priestix, whatever, priestix, with her rainbow stole uh, to assure everyone that they don't have to worry about anything that that Bible-believing Christian just said. That's it's a plague upon our nation. It's a cancer. Um, and it's part of God's judgment. It it truly is. It truly is. So so there you go. So anyway, uh wanted, wanted to run through that. I am sure, to be honest with you, by next week, we'll probably have more Francis stuff to talk about. <laughs> it's you know, uh or maybe by maybe by Thursday. We'll have more Francis stuff to talk about. I I don't know. Um, but um, we appreciate you listening to the program, tuning us in today. Oh, by the way, one last thing. Um, I didn't get a chance to download it, but uh, Tim Bushong has finished the new uh, Radio Free Geneva uh, theme, the, the, the new video opening for the... For Radio Free Geneva. Um, wait a minute. That's not it. Well, he said to look at it in my email. Oh, maybe it's maybe it's down here. Oh, yeah, it's... I hate when it does that. Oh, here's the outro. Well, I, I thought he said he was finished. Anyway, um, so <laughs> we're just going to have to sit around and hope that maybe... 
Leighton Flowers will say something worthy of Radio Free Geneva. Oh, he just did. Oh, he did it again. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> I, I, told, I told Tim, I said, oh, great. Now I have to wait 2.34 microseconds for Leighton Flowers to say something worthy of doing a Radio Free Geneva once you get this thing done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we will have, we've got to let everybody know, watch the app. We'll put it out there when we decide to do a Radio Free Geneva. Maybe we'll have something by Thursday. I don't know. Um, but um, I'm looking forward to seeing a video version of A Mighty Fortress. Uh, this should be pretty epic. Um, and so he says it's done. And he said he had sent it to me, but I, I don't see it in my email box. So um, that says 2.40 p.m. So, yeah. Oh, there's the intro. Okay, good. All right. Wow, look at all this stuff. Cool. All right, so maybe we'll just have to dig something up for Radio Free Geneva one way or the other, just, just simply because now we've told you it's out there. So, uh, Just because, yeah. I, I mean, believe me, there's, there's plenty out there. All right, thanks for watching the program today. We'll see you next time. God bless.